Hello and welcome to All I Know Is This, a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Amy Star Redwine. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are bringing you today episode three in season two. And this season, we are following our sermon series, Can We Talk Biblical Conversations in Good Faith? And today I have two guests with me, and I'm so honored to welcome Martha Rollins and Danita Roundtree Green to our podcast today. Um, many at FPC know Martha as a longtime member, and Danita is certainly a friend of FPC that many of our folks have gotten to know primarily through the work that these two women have done together. They founded Coming to the Table RVA, and this has been a a labor of love over many years. And uh, this is an organization that helps people have just the kind of good faith conversations about hard, sensitive topics, in this case, the topic of race, that we are trying to talk about. So I know that they will have much wisdom to share. So welcome to you both. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. Why don't you start by telling us the story of how you two came to be collaborators in this work? This is one of the things we we, we went back and forth for a long time about what year it was, but I think I made this battle, I may have won. It was 2009. Yes. Yes. Um, And I had just authored a a novel about families that have been devastated from the impact of incarceration. And I believe that same year, Martha was being honored at an event and I was asked to present and read from my book. And I did so, and afterwards she walked up to me and and with that beautiful smile that she has and that beautiful way that she has. And she said, I loved your book. And and she talked about some things that we had in common because she was at Boaz and Ruth. And she invited me to go to the White House with her (laughs) the following week. Wow. Right, to meet Michelle Obama. And I said, wow, this lady has spunk and I wanna know more about her. so that was the beginning of our journey back in 2009. I agree. That was that was our meeting. And we continued interweaving our relationship. Just I met her children and um, we did things together just mm-hmm. as developing friends would do. And then when I retired from Boaz News at the end of 2013, I was looking around thinking, what do you do when you retire? And I thought, I know so many folks from the African-American community and so many folks in the white communities, and they don't know each other. And that just didn't make sense. And so Danita and I together started listening luncheons, and we'd host them at my house, and people came. We'd each invite folks we knew and introduce them. And that was uh, spring of 2014. We A bunch of us went to the National Coming to the Table meeting. Danita was my roommate. And, you know, as you become roommates in a college dorm with really bad mattresses, <laughs> yes. you really we were roommates for, for a week. During that time when you were kind of wrapping up things at Boys and Roof, I was in graduate school. You remember, and I had gone back to get a degree in leadership because I know I knew that I wanted to do something to make a difference in the world in our most um, vulnerable populations. And you were doing that very thing at Boaz and Ruth. So we were we were a likely pair then. That's Just right. You know. <laughs> well, you, I can certainly vouch that you make a wonderful team. Mm-hmm. 
Um, tell us more about Coming to the Table. What is that organization and, and um, how does it work? It is a national organization. It's been around for a number of years, even though um, our chapter was founded in 2014. But it's all about bringing people together to examine their personal story when it comes to race, their relationship to the topic, and to move forward to a place of racial healing. And we do this through facilitated conversation, which is uh, may sound easier <laughs> than it really is, but it is not talking at each other, but talking to each other about um, our history, our narratives that have been so separate for so long and being able to boldly go forward and build some relationships. We saw the model, as Martha says, down at EMU, Eastern Mennonite and thought that it would work well, even here in the formal capital of the Confederacy, <laughs> just um, to bring people together for the first time to have really honest and authentic conversation. And I love the model because um, having been an antique dealer, they use the, it, it means something to me, it's it's the table, the, coming to the table, which is um, partly what Martin Luther King envisioned of coming to the table of brotherhood together, but the table has four legs, and I always like to talk about the legs because one leg is connecting intentionally across racial lines. We disconnected so intentionally for the Jim Crow years, so it's intentional to, to create experiences together, conversations together. Um, so that's what we, we do things. We do trips together, uh, Danita and I, but also the group. We do book clubs. We have movie groups um, because it creates a... a what friends do. The and then second leg is we have to tell the truth in history. And I've just been amazed. I mean, I thought I was smart and I have all these degrees, but I have learned so much that I had no clue about. I had no, I was taught that uh, enslaved people were happy in the fields and that the war was about um, Northern aggression. So, I mean, uncovering history is an important leg that we do. And then Danita is an amazing, I'm going to let you tell about the historical trauma. Go for it. Just like Martha, I came with um, a lot of different um, life paths that brought me here. So I'd been a teacher, but I've been a writer, um, published author for about 30 years now in fiction and nonfiction. And all of my books are culturally specific, dealing with um, race or um, African-American culture. I also work with the Virginia Department of Health. I am a trained trauma-informed care specialist in the particular specification of historical trauma, generational trauma, and community trauma. So even being able to look at ACEs, adverse childhood experience, and how what we have learned or mislearned as children haunt us as adults and decide how we think and how we feel and um, programs behavior and patterns that sometimes are hard to shake when we know that we can do better. So, so that third leg, we finally finish with the fourth leg, which is taking actions to change system mm -hmm. structure. Yeah, well, and I, I too love the, um, the image of the table. Um, it's a, certainly such a theological image. It's so important in our tradition to think about what that table is that is so central to who we are and and what is the vision for who gets to be around the table. So I, I have really been captivated by the idea that what we do is gather together around tables in order to have 
these conversations. And that there's something about that and just being around a table that I think as human beings, I don't know, it puts us in a certain place, maybe a certain mindset. And you're, you're so right. You know, we are doing well, actually, meeting virtually. Our numbers have almost doubled since the pandemic. I don't know if that's a good thing wow. or a bad thing. However, we miss so much meeting in the physical. And just as the name implies, coming to the table, there's nothing better than trying to have a contentious conversation around some good food. Yeah. <laughs> yes, food helps in your families and when you're having them in big groups like this. And people bringing in their potluck dishes or an old recipe or something they wanted to try um, and being able to share food and have a conversation makes a huge difference. This is the, these are the neatest words, but I want to make sure they said is that we help people to get to a new way of thinking, being and doing because they have courageous, clumsy conversations. Yes, exactly. Courageous, clumsy, and often uncomfortable conversations at the table. Having trained facilitators, that's a big part of what we do that most people don't realize. We create a safe space because we have folks that have been trained in guiding people through this, these conversations using circle process and the touchstone method so that uh, people can be honest and um, say what's on their hearts and minds and, and not feel intimidated by what they may hear back or, or be frightened by what they may say themselves and the reactions they may get. So the facilitation is is really, really a big part of what we do. I'd love to hear you both reflect on what you feel you've learned in your life and, and particularly, I think, in this work with coming to the table about having, um, we're calling them in this series, good faith conversations. And I think those four legs of the table that you talked about, to me, those are part of it. You've You've got to come with a certain spirit and be committed to to acknowledging the truth, um, which may be different than what we thought and to work for healing. But but what have you learned about having these kinds of hard conversations? To answer that question, I'd have to say, um, well, I'm going to plug a book first. Our executive leadership in the national wrote a book, of, I guess maybe two years ago now, called The Little Book of Racial Healing. And in that story, I mean, in that book, I wrote a story about when Martha and I really had the revelation that we wanted to go on this trip of creating this chapter together. I had always looked at the devastation of our history as far as um, race relations as being something that was solely on the backs of African-American people. And when we look at the economics and the social structure, uh, we can definitely see that. However, now as a trauma-informed care specialist, I've been able to see how the trauma does not necessarily of African-Americans. This part of the European-American experience, too. When you're carrying around um, grief, sorrow, um, significant anguish, the burden of coming from a slave-holding family, that root, how you carry that burden sometimes leads in uh, more harm to yourself, generations of um, European-American and white people, and how that is played out and inflicted in different ways in a lifetime. I was at the opening of a new wing of the African-American Museum in New York. This is a story that's in the book. 
And there was um, a white woman standing beside me and we were looking at a painting called The Gordon, which is a very famous, iconic piece of uh, an an African-American, a slave. And his back is really torn up from the lash, from the whip. And I looked at it and was about to walk away. And then all of a sudden, this woman just threw herself into my arms and she just cried hysterically. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about what happened to your people. And um, at first, I really thought she was nuts. I was like, (laughs) okay, lady, sure, no problem. And um, just as glib as I sound now, I I told that story to Martha when I came back to Richmond and I was standing, I'll never forget it. I was standing in her kitchen and I just kind of, uh, you know, laughed it off. And I looked at her and she was actually teary. And um, I was so affected by that, that um, I hadn't imagined that my friend for years had trauma and grief around um, the topic of enslavement and the legacy of that and how my family, particularly as an African-American, is is still affected by that tragedy. So um, it sensitized me and knew that there was more work to be done across the board. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what keeps me motivated, it keeps me at the table. Well, Danita, that is an incredible story and a great segue into thinking about our scripture passage for this week, which is it comes from the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 15, where Joseph, who was sold as a slave to Egypt by his own brothers, probably a couple of decades before this, has this sort of reunion and reconciliation with his brothers. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about how clearly we see in this story the trauma that all of them have carried from that event. And the trauma has been different for Joseph than Mm -hmm. from his brothers, but they have all suffered because of it. Right. And I I think that's one of the things that makes this such a a poignant story. And at the very beginning of the story, Joseph has uh, had this back and forth with his brothers for a, a, a little while now. They have come and in need of food because there's a famine. They don't realize who he is, but he's in a position of power and can help them get the food they need. They go back home. They come back again. And finally, Joseph's at the point where he's ready to reveal himself as the brother that they thought was probably dead, long dead. Mm -hmm. Before he does, he sends everyone else out of the room who's not one of his brothers and weeps so loudly that everyone who wasn't in the room heard it anyway. It says the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. And again, I just think that speaks to the depth of the emotion and the trauma. But I, I'm curious what um, if there's anything about this particular story that sort of speaks to you in terms of the work and the reconciling and healing work that you have tried to do. You said so, so wonderfully, Amy, about Joseph and his brothers. I think that in this text, we in this country have never been on the same footing. We've never been on the same path. We've never had the same narrative. So what we are charged to create now is something new and totally different. Mm -hmm. And that is actually exciting to me that we can get to a place where we can acknowledge each other, almost meeting each other for the first time as Americans 
here in the nation that we built together mm. and experience something phenomenal. So um, as great as the story with Joseph and his brothers is, I think that what we are facing now will be so profound that it will take us to a, a whole nother place of joy and friendship and harmony. I know that sounds like something off the back of a cereal box, but I, I definitely do believe that. I definitely do believe that. I have two thoughts and we go back and forth about this too. I, <laughs> partly because reconciliation is such a, a long held word in go in my life. I think of it in the big theological sense of we began as one family way back in the beginning in the garden. And the vision is we'll end at one family, but we're broken in the middle. I can live with the word reconciliation, but I respect what you say to Nita, so I don't use it much anymore. (laughs) I'm not, if you look at it in the perspective of God's beginning and end um somebody said you begin with a garden and you end with a with a garden really mm-hmm. and anyway i so i don't throw it out totally but i understand what you say because certainly in the american history there has been no togetherness it's a matter of power so when i was thinking about this the, the genesis story i was thinking about power in the family when joseph was young his brothers being bigger and older and more had the power mm-hmm. and they did evil things with their power they thought it would never get up with them and so in one sense i see the white community as the brothers we did they didn't sit there thinking they were evil they just thought they just didn't want to be irritated but there's a we used our power to um to own people and to use people for economic gain. The folks who were enslaved were very resilient. That's something I've been learning is the resilience. Mm. It's amazing the history that was just totally buried. But And so now we're at the point when the power holders from the past are meeting a, a Joseph that they hadn't recognized because they didn't pay any attention to him because he was just a thing. And now his voice is heard. He's in a place of, of, um, of power. Mm-hmm. And, not, and he doesn't use it as a power over, because he could, he certainly could. He's in the greater power now, in a way, but he doesn't, he, he invites the brothers in. And there's not a lot of trust to begin with, which I think is the way we are now. There's not it's like, right. okay, I'm not gonna trust this person. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but I see it as a, a way of coming to the new place and the new vision that Danita talks about in this country um, is that as we recognize it's about the gifts we each have and it's not the power over that the establishment has, it's, it's how do we live into beloved community in a different way? Mm-hmm. How do we live and share and become God's people, which is in essence being reconciled to the garden and being mm-hmm. building the beloved community? Because to me, those two anchor it. Well, and I I so appreciate that sort of uh, that you both shared the the vision of what the possibilities are. We're not there yet, okay. and you know I, I don't know that any of us are going to see there in our lifetime, but we have an image of what it is that we are longing for. Um, 
which is, you know, I think it's something that we get to practice. Mm-hmm. And, and we practice it every time we come to the table and celebrate communion as faith communities. And we have this table where everyone is welcome and loved just as they are and fed and nourished. And, you know, we have people coming to the tables that you all have created with your organization to have these conversations that hopefully can bring some healing. And and I really appreciate what you said, Danita. And I heard somebody else talk this week about we should use the word conciliation instead of reconciliation because the first one hasn't happened yet Mm -hmm. um and that's really helpful to think about you know this story is certainly not a perfect metaphor for the work that we're trying to do i think what martha and i demonstrate the best is that we know that we may not agree on everything our life journeys have been different but miraculously we ended up in the same place Mm -hmm. (laughs) And wanting the same things and being able to hold the big vision. And um, I I think that is the miracle that we experience at coming to the table, Mm -hmm. that people from all walks of life and uh, different ideologies can come together and say, okay, we don't agree on everything, but this one thing we know, (laughs) right, (laughs) and we're willing to to work toward that. So uh, as we wrap up our conversation, and you all have so much to offer, and I will just say we're so excited as a congregation that coming to the table is working with us this fall, and there'll be Yay. six sessions that folks have signed up for, and um, and I, I hope it won't be the last time we do that either. So it won't be the last opportunity, because I'm hoping maybe some people listening have gotten interested in, in this. Yes. And of course, you all have... Um, events regularly that uh, people can come to? How can how can folks find out more? We have events weekly. Um, third Tuesday was last night, and that was huge. We had 84 people on the call. And But to, for what's coming, go to our website, which is comingtothetable-rva.org. Thank you so much for that work. Thank you for sharing it with us today. And I hope people will um, go and find you and and show up to some of your events. And uh, we will continue the conversations on our end. But thank you again for being with us. And thanks to all of our listeners today. Again, you can always find out more about what's happening at the church on our website, fpcrichmond.org. And we will continue to be back in the podcast feed every week during this series. And thank you for having those tough conversations and thank you for listening.